When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from across Ukraine, discuss developments in Russia as thousands queue to endorse a liberal and anti-war politician's presidential bid, and we analyse Russian and Ukrainian tank tactics. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 23rd of January. One year and 332 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley, Editor of the Central Asia and South Caucasus Bulletin James Kilner, and Telegraph writer and former tank commander Hamish de Bratton-Gordon. I started by summarising the latest news from Ukraine. Appalling scenes were seen across several Ukrainian cities this morning as Russia launched a salvo of missiles early on Tuesday, killing at least six people and injuring 70 more. In Kyiv, at least 10 explosions were heard as air raid sirens were sounded shortly before 6am local time. Vitaly Klitschko, the city's mayor, said a non-residential building was set ablaze, while a fire also broke out in several apartments. Klitschko added that an unexploded warhead was discovered in an apartment which has since been evacuated. In Kharkiv, that's Ukraine's second largest city, uh, initial reports suggested several residential buildings were damaged and there was also a gas pipe fire triggered by the strikes. Five people, including two women aged 56 and 40, were reportedly killed, while 51 people at least were hospitalised, including children aged 10 and 12. Mayor Ihor Tarekov told to local television that rescue workers dug through rubble to search for survivors. State energy firm Naftagas said a gas pipeline in Kharkiv was also damaged. Thousands of residents were left without power after electricity infrastructure was also damaged. This is from the uh, energy ministry. In Pavlohrad, that's a city to the south of Kharkiv and east of Dnipro, uh, Serhi Lysak, uh, governor, uh, reported that at least one person was killed and another was injured in strikes in the city. Some more details then on this air assault uh, from the Ukrainian military, who said that Russia launched 41 missiles early on Tuesday and air defences destroyed 21 of them. Uh, the enemy launched a combined missile attack on Ukraine using cruise, ballistic air and anti-aircraft guided missiles. As a result of combat operations, the Air Force, in cooperation with the Air Defense Forces, destroyed 15 X-101, X-55 and X-55 cruise missiles, five Iskander-M ballistic missiles and one X-59 guided missiles, it added. Towards the front lines, just quickly before we go to Francis Sternley, Russian forces also made recently confirmed gains south of Avdivka and continued to advance across the, the sort of localised region. This comes from the ISW, who says that geolocated footage indicated that Russian forces advanced beyond a section of railway line south of the city. Those are the updates then from Ukraine. Let's go to Francis Sternley, who's been looking at the political and diplomatic picture. Francis. Thanks, David. 
The most visually striking event this week will be the much-trailed NATO exercise involving 90,000 troops. So expect to hear, and perhaps most importantly see, a fair bit from that once it begins. And I imagine some listeners will be in places where they can see certain things going on, planes flying overhead, etc. And if so, let us know what you see. This is the largest exercise in decades and is evidently designed to be a show of strength and act as a deterrent following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. As we reported last week, several senior figures have spoken publicly about the danger of an imminent war with Russia in years to come. But NATO Secretary Jens Stoltenberg seemed keen today to play down the intensity of those anxieties. He said... We do all of this to ensure that we have the forces in place to remove any room for miscalculation or misunderstanding in Moscow about our readiness to protect every inch of NATO territory. And as long as we do that, there will be no attack against the NATO territory. Now, we understand a core aspect of these exercises will be how US troops could reinforce European allies in countries bordering Russia and on the alliance's eastern flank if a conflict were to flare up with a near-peer adversary. That is logical, but one has to wonder what the contingencies are were the worst-case scenario to happen and the US withdrew some of its military support from Europe or indeed withdrew from the NATO alliance entirely, as Donald Trump has threatened. Europe has to be prepared for that possibility, if only to show Russia that it has plans in place that would ensure the defeat of the Russian army without America. And I imagine that we'll be seeing and hearing more about that in the coming months. But thinking longer term, the question of long term security guarantees for Ukraine continues to be a key one in Europe. The new Polish Prime Minister Donald Tusk visited Kyiv yesterday and announced a new Polish defence package that includes a loan for large-scale Ukrainian weapon purchases, as well as stating that Poland has joined the G7 declaration of support for Ukraine with the hope of further commitments down the line. Now, if one rereads that G7 commitment, which I have this morning, it is powerful, but light on some details, which will surely be the critical ones for deterring any future invasion of Ukraine once this conflict ends. So the document says, and I quote, In the event of a future Russian armed attack, we intend to immediately consult with Ukraine to determine appropriate next steps. We intend to provide Ukraine with swift and sustained security assistance, modern military equipment across land, sea and air domains and economic assistance to impose economic and other costs on Russia and to consult with Ukraine on its needs as it exercises its right of self-defence enshrined in Article 51 of the UN Charter. To this end, we will work with Ukraine on an enhanced package of security commitments and arrangements in case of future aggression to enable Ukraine to defend its territory and sovereignty. Now, many of you will hear that and think, as I do, that it effectively guarantees a continuation of the kind of policies that the West has adopted at present towards Ukraine. But is that enough? What Kyiv said it wanted is cast iron guarantees that certain countries would intervene militarily in a way reminiscent of an Article 5 type scenario were an attack on Ukraine to take place. And with that in mind, I was quite struck by the remarks of Alexander Litvinenko, the head of Ukraine's foreign intelligence in The Economist, who argues that perhaps there is another way and that the recent security deal with Britain is a game changer that could mean Russia is deterred if other Western countries offered similar assurances. He writes, today Ukraine is able to repel Russian aggression with adequate Western military and economic support. That support will remain effective if it is prolonged 
until Russian aggression stops and comprehensive, encompassing political, economic, military and intelligence support, as well as help countering cyber warfare and disinformation. The most recent example of this approach is the signing of the agreement on security cooperation between Ukraine and Britain on January 12th. Excluding the Baltic states, which are now part of the EU and NATO, this was the third agreement of its kind between a former Soviet republic and another country. It is the first of its kind to touch the core of the former Russian Empire. It is the first between Ukraine and a major power which enshrines emerging geopolitical reality in a legal agreement. It marks the deepest shift so far in the West's approach to the Russian concept of its spheres of influence. The subdued reaction of the British media to the agreement shows how normal and routine Anglo-European defence and security relations have become in the public mind. Now, as it has done throughout history, he continues, Britain can serve as a model for others. The deal signed can pave the way for similar pacts with other Western countries. Eleven of them are at various stages in negotiating such agreements with Ukraine. So just to remind ourselves, what did that cooperation between Britain and Ukraine offer? In short, quote from it, a range of support for Ukraine's security, including intelligence sharing, cyber security, medical and military training and defence industrial cooperation. In the details, it goes much further, in short, than that G7 statement. So perhaps Ukraine is content at present to have guarantees from Western countries to provide similar levels of support to now in the hope that with enough of those commitments enshrined in law from, say, a dozen or more countries, that would be an effective enough deterrent without an Article 5-style situation in place. As Litvinenko writes, agreements on security cooperation are gradually moving Ukraine into the Western security space without requiring the presence of Western troops on Ukrainian soil. They accustom the world to Ukraine's participation in the alliance. Such agreements create the basis for Ukraine's accession to NATO. So as I say, perhaps for now, that is considered enough. But I would still posit that longer term, this question of the precise nature of security guarantees will be critical. As we saw with the Budapest Memorandum, the wording and the legal basis really counts. So sorry, a little bit of a deep dive on that subject, but I think it's really important when we talk about security guarantees that we don't just see that as blanket, that this is something actually that has a lot of degrees built within it. And that's those degrees are really, really important. So that's the question of defence integration. Just briefly, economic integration. It's another key step, of course, and that debate around grain passing into Europe will be familiar to listeners. And we learned today that the European Commission has extended its trade liberalisation with Kiev for a further year to June 2025. The EU has, of course, suspended import duties, quotas and trade defence measures for imports from Ukraine since June 2022. However, those cheap Ukrainian grain exports have sparked protests by certain governments, farmers and truckers in neighbouring countries like Poland and Hungary. And the Commission is trying to find a way to square the circle, as it were, and present a proposal that allows for that liberalisation whilst at the same time taking into account the sensitivities of agricultural sectors in eastern member states of the bloc. So it's trying to keep everyone happy. 
Will it work? We don't know. But the longer term question of the question of degrees of Ukrainian integration economically will be also heated given the impact on farming industries in Europe. And I think the scale of how much they would be impacted is sometimes underappreciated in the commentary. It would be transformative. So you can see why the Commission has to try and ride this sort of halfway house. And finally, in another development, I said last week we were unsure of the timeline regarding Turkey giving the green light to Sweden's accession to NATO. Well, we have just learned that its parliament is expected to vote this week to ratify Sweden's bid to join the Western Defence Alliance, which would leave only Hungary as the potential stumbling block. As such, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has said today that he's inviting his Swedish counterpart to Budapest to discuss the accession bid, which still needs approval from him if it is to pass even with Turkey ratifying it potentially this week. Budapest has often denounced what it's called Stockholm's openly hostile attitude, accusing Swedish representatives of being repeatedly keen to bash Hungary on rule of law issues. So I imagine those discussions will be heated. We'll be watching it very closely But it could be the week that we see Sweden see all barriers to it joining NATO formally removed. If so, it would be quite a moment. Thank you very much, Francis Sternley, for all of that. James Kilner, welcome back to the podcast. It's very good to have you back on. You've been casting an eye over several stories in Russia. What would you like to talk us through? Hi, David. Yeah, nice to be back on the pod. And and please jump in if if, uh, you've already covered this with your various correspondents covering Russia. But today, Boris Nadezhdin, a uh, sort of liberal economist chap, he and his team claim to have have raised the 100,000 signatures needed to get on the ballot for the presidential election in Russia in mid-March. This is really important for your listeners to to follow because he is a potentially, and and I'll explain why I say potentially, he is an anti-war candidate. He's been on TV, he, he's written enough stuff about this, and complaining and arguing against Putin's war, in, invasion of Ukraine in February 22, and also uh, in 2014. Now, the election is important for watchers of the war in Ukraine, because it is being shaped by the Kremlin as an opportunity to showcase ordinary Russian support for Putin's war. It's very difficult to gauge the actual support for his war. Analysts and commentators can only guess. But the general impression I get from watching this stuff quite closely is that support for Putin's war is actually far lower than the Kremlin wants it to be. And Nadezhdin is acting as a sort of lightning rod for some of this frustration. Now, now there's many, many caveats which I can get into in a minute. But he sort of... he. At, at, at the moment, we're at the pre, pre-registration phase. So currently, candidates have to raise 100,000 signatures if you're representing an official political party, or 300,000 signatures if you're an independent candidate by the end of January to then be, be even considered by the Central Election Commission. And only after the Central Election Commission has considered your application, are you then allowed onto the official ballot sometime beginning of February, and then candidates have five weeks or so uh, to campaign. As we know, as we've discussed previously on this podcast, Putin is actually standing as an independent candidate and not as a candidate of his United Russia party. He, his team's already said they've easily passed the 300,000 mark. They've 
several million signatures, you know, uh, showcasing just how popular Putin wants people to believe he is. He wants people to see him as one of the great Russian wartime leaders. And in the meantime, there's several straw men that Kremlin's put forward, the usual sort of suspects, the chat from the Communist Party, the chat from the LDPR party. These are straw men who who are there to give the illusion of plurality, but actually doing the Kremlin's bidding. But Nadezhin is different. Boris Nadezhin, he comes from the liberal economic wing of Russian politics. He's been around since the 1990s. He's actually been an advisor to Sergei Kirenko, who is a, a deputy chief of staff in the presidential administration. So he, he is known by authorities. He's on TV as a commentator. He has been, up until now rather, allowed to present the sort of anti-war um, commentary in Russia on TV and in, in com- commentary in newspapers, etc., uh, purely for the uh, opportunity for pro-war commentators to jump on him and knock him down. That's been his role. And it seems to me and to some other analysts that he's been allowed to gather signatures uh, f- to to mount a, a potential presidential campaign, again, as an act of plurality, a sort of a Kremlin ploy to distract and to give the impression that this is some sort of functioning democracy, when in fact it obviously isn't. We know that two high-profile candidates have already been disqualified from the presidential race. Igor Gidkin from the hardcore nationalist side, he's actually in prison, as, as, as you know. And by the way, being in prison doesn't disqualify you automatically from, uh, from running in a presidential election in Russia. It just makes it slightly harder. But he's been disqualified. He's been very critical of Putin and, and his war. And then you had a, a liberal journalist, uh, Yekaterin Dunstova, who was disqualified uh, a week or so ago. But Boris Nadezhin has been allowed to collect these signatures, and I've seen loads of photos and loads of videos across Russia of queues of people queuing up in in snowy streets, etc., to sign under his name. There's also been plenty of reports of people being harassed while they're doing this, etc. But today, the Nadezhin team has said that they have the 100,000 they need. There are some other technicalities they need to get through uh, at least... 40 regions of Russia have to be represented within that 100,000. So there are sort of technicalities that it can be, still be disqualified from. Now, as well as coming at irritating the Kremlin during a time it, it basically wants to have a fairly smooth election for Putin, it comes as you can really detect, and it's, it's reading between the lines and, and reading widely here, growing frustration at the war in, in, in Ukraine. In, in Russia, no, not only have you had um, reports of uh, heating systems breaking down, which is angering local people and all points to the Kremlin prioritizing manufacturing for its military manufacturing for its weapons and industry, etc., over civilian infrastructure. But you've had these you've had these demonstrations in Bashkortostan against a Kremlin installed leaders. These demonstrations were ostensibly sort of about supporting a local leader who'd been put in prison and presented four years on, on, a, on a very spurious uh, reason, cues of r- racial hatred, but uh, it's all very spurious. Um, and it's all, it's all rooted in environmental activism as well. But Khorasan is one of these sort of fringe regions which the Kremlin is recruited from heavily for its, to mobilise soldiers for its war in Ukraine, and that's all feeding into the anger. And these demonstrations where several thousand people came out and fought riot police. This was not a flash in the pan. 
There has been fallout demonstrations. The Kremlin's cracked down hard. It's arrested ringleaders. It's promised that anyone arrested has no future, I quote, and has blamed separatists. This is a feature, saying blame separatists and outsiders. This is a feature of previous demonstrations on the fringe of, of Russia, including Dagestan at the end of last year. And I think we're going to see more of this as these sort of fringe regions, which the Kremlin has relied upon to, to mobilize, start to protest more heavily. I think we're going to see more blame on fringe, on, on sort of separatists and, and Ukrainian agents whipping up anti-Kremlin sentiment. In fact, they are very much anti-Kremlin. They're anti-mobilization. They're anti-war. It's just very difficult for people to express that so obliquely. Another group which is uh, com- continuing to protest in Russia, despite all the danger which goes along with this, is the wives and mothers of mobilized men. This is the Putamoy group, means the way home. They have continued to lay flowers every Saturday at, at war memorials and to uh, stand outside public offices with, with placards calling for their men to, to men, their men who are mobilized at the end of last, uh, sorry, the end of 22 to finally be given a break from the front line. They have said they're not an anti war, but you can see the anti war sentiment creep in. And one of their leaders, who was detained for the first time and then released without charge, did actually give her most anti-war comments that I've ever read a few days ago. So the anti-war rhetoric is coming. And there's now reports on Russian telegram channels, Russian language telegram channels, of the Putamoy movement attracting wise and mobilized men in Donetsk. As we know, the Donetsk region was illegally annexed by uh, the Kremlin in September 22, and uh, the men there were mobilized very early. So they were mobilized shortly after February 22, when the Kremlin invaded, initiated the full-scale invasion of, of Ukraine. So it's remarkable to me that women in Donetsk are joining this movement. It really shows that this sort of movement is growing in, in size and capacity. And it's a real headache for the Kremlin. The Kremlin is not sure how to deal with these women who are challenging the status quo around the war. Wives and mothers of mobilized men and so Russian soldiers have always had a special place in the system. It's very difficult for the police just to go and arrest them and throw them in prison. Object of that, especially in the run-up to an election, would look extremely bad for the Kremlin. So uh, there, there's all that happening. There's economic problems. We've spoken about the aid price rises on this podcast before, and I've written about it in the newspaper. It's very much symptomatic of rising inflation across the board for civilian products and, and, and infrastructure. Although the headline figures from the Russian economists are that the Russian economy is, is handling the war and, and Western sanctions extremely well, life is getting more boring, more expensive, and just generally tougher for ordinary Russians. And they're not, you know, they fully understand that this is, is all linked to the war. So to circle right back to, um, to today's news, Boris Nadezhdin's claim that he now has 100,000 signatures, the leaping over the bar that he needs to potentially become a presidential candidate is really important to watch. It's going to be really important to watch the Kremlin's reaction. I don't expect him to be able to put his name on, the, on that, to be able to mount a campaign. Then he's got, I think he's going to get barred in some spurious technical reason. But it's going to be very interesting to see how the Kremlin handles that. They, they have a potentially destabilizing election to handle. 
Well, thank you so much, James, for that overview. Just a couple of follow-up questions. And of course, Francis and Hamish, if you have them as well, please do jump in. You touched on it very briefly just at the end there. But what happens with Boris Nadezhin if if this snowball continues to roll, if he keeps on getting more signatures, if if he starts to overcome the, the sort of barriers or the sort of points of entry in the system? How would you... Again, you sort of touched on it, but because you hear a bit more, how would you expect the Kremlin to react as watchers watching what's going on? What should we expect to see? So the classic way they will deal with this is they'll find it, the, the, the Central Election Committee is like the, the Kremlin's pit bull in, 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 the, in this circumstances. It will very likely find a technicality, as it has done through, through, through you know, previous elections, to to be able to disqualify Nadezhdin. This may be, oh, he's only got uh, signatures from 39 regions in Russia rather than 40. Or it may be that, that they found that, you know, they decided that uh, 10,000 of his signatures are fake or, or whatever it is. And I would 100%, if they do not want, they do not need a genuine anti-war candidate on the ticket. It is too dangerous. The Kremlin just will not allow that to happen. And I think they are, they were, I think they've probably been a bit wrong-footed by the support by Nadezhdin, who is a, he, he's not a particularly high profile liberal character in, in Russian politics. And, and I, you know, it's difficult to encapsulate in, in, in its entirety, but um, he divides this sort of liberal opposition as it is anyway. Typically, you know, he, he wasn't particularly trusted at the beginning when he put his name forward, although they have gotten behind him now. He has got some important endorsements from the, the likes of Mikhail Kordikovsky, Dunsova herself, and even members of Navalny's team in exile, not from Navalny himself, I don't think, not that I've seen. So he has managed to coalesce this opposition support around him. And that, I think, is the problem for the Kremlin. And I think his potential run for the presidency is going to end in in, in the next week or so. And, and that's definitely something for people who are interested in this war to watch out for. I don't know whether that will trigger any street protests, but that's definitely a, a flashpoint. James, great to hear your voice on the podcast. It's been a while since we've shared the airwaves together. Just a quick one from me. Obviously, I think we know how this election is going to end with Putin winning. But within that parameters, you've laid out, I think, very well today that there is more to this election than just the rubber stamping. We can read quite a lot about the state of Russian society, depending on what happens. So if I put to you, what would an unsuccessful re-election for Putin look like? As in, he's going to win anyway, but where would we expect to see some of that fraying that's suggestive that all is not well in the Russian state? Hi, Francis. Yep, it's it's always good to be back. So thank thank you very much. um, I've been reading various accounts from uh, supposed Kremlin insiders or quotes from Kremlin insiders from Russian opposition saying that the Kremlin wants, considers a um, a 70% win rate or vote rate for Putin at the election on a 70% turnout to be their ambition. So, so that from a very sort of oblique data point of view is, is what viewers should be looking out for. And obviously, we know that they rotested their electronic voting systems last September in regional elections. And they're rolling out again this time. There's three days of voting in the middle of March. And one of the reasons they're, they're keen on this electronic voting, they claim it's good for democracy and will get higher turnouts. 
the, the reality is it's far easier to manipulate votes and, and to frankly fake results if, if a lot of it is done electronically. As for other indicators that will give a, an insight into the popularity of Putin's war in uh, Ukraine, I think Nadezhdin, any reaction, any sort of like any flicker of any serious reaction to him being cancelled is important to watch out for. You have to remember that anti-Kremlin and anti-war protests in Russia are banned. So if there is any sort of reaction, and I'm not sure there will be a huge reaction, is important to watch out for. I also think that the Putamoy women's movement, which has only been going since about October, September, October, uh, I remember talking about it around then, and has sort of snowballed into more sort of important influential grassroots activism is really important to monitor as well. So I think there are a few things that that listeners of this podcast can watch out for. Well, thank you very much, James, and for your answers there and for Francis for your question. James, we'll of course come back to you at the end for a final thought. Hey, Mr. Breton Gordon, thank you so much for joining. Can we ask you to do something a little bit different today for us and our listeners? Can you take us to Tank School? I know you've been looking at a couple of clips, some longer videos of some of the action that's been seen along the front lines between Ukrainian and Russian tanks. With your experience and your background, can you talk us through what you've seen and what we should take from it? Yes, absolutely. Good afternoon, team. Good afternoon, everybody. It's never miss an opportunity if you're a tanky to talk about tanks. Only sad that my cavalry chum, Captain Nichols, isn't here to uh, join in with his expert views as well. But I, I think we're at a really key moment. And I'll come back to that, hopefully after I've gone through what appears in, in three videos, which I think are, are going to be linked to the to the podcast so people can look at them in more detail later. And I think they're really quite, quite fascinating to me. And I shall try and describe it without being too tanky technical, as it were. But it really illustrates the holy trinity of tank design, firepower protection and mobility. And I would suggest that we in the West, we in this country in particular, have got that holy trinity right with our current tank, the Challenger 2. And the Russians have got it wrong. They don't really bother about protection. And that's why they've lost so many, four and a half thousand tanks thus far. But the third video, if you like, which hopefully everybody's seen, was on the Telegraph website on Thursday. Joe Barnes wrote up a piece on it, which I gave him a few comments on. And then I wrote in the paper on Friday really what I thought that means. And it, and it rather, it, although it was a Russian tank that was destroyed, yeah, as a former tank commander, to see a tank destroyed by an infantry vehicle really does make one shudder a little bit. But there, there are two videos which I made for a, another media organisation TV source. I might say the first one, which I'm about to describe, has had over a million views. And, and apparently that makes me an influencer so when my children are next at home, I'll ask them what that means. But anyway, looking at the first video, it shows a Russian tank manoeuvre. This is about three months old now, so probably October time. But it's basically three Russian tanks, T-72s and T-64Bs, and some infantry fighting vehicles, probably BRDMs or, B or BMPs. And it says an awful lot. These seven or eight vehicles 
are absolutely cramped together. There's barely a cigarette paper you can put between them. And they're all moving in a straight line. And they all get destroyed. They all brew up. One reason is because the Russians don't bother too much about protection. But critically to me, it shows basically you have the troop leader of the tank group, you know, who'll be a young lieutenant, I expect, who's out in front. He's probably the only person who has a map. He's the only person who knows what the plan is. And he probably has a vague idea of knowing, uh, uh, knowing where he's going. The, there's a big tree line of wood to their side, which actually they should be in. But actually, they are all in the open, moving pretty slowly. And basically, the first tank gets hit probably by a Javelin missile or perhaps MLAW. You might have the, the British MLAW, the British anti-tank weapon that has done so much damage. Or one of these FP drones. I mean, these little... $400 drones, basically they put an RPG warhead, a rocket-propelled grenade warhead that you'll have seen people firing from their shoulders on there, fly them into the turret of a tank and explodes. And because the Russian tanks have all their ammunition, so not quite laying on the floor, but it's not protected, if you have a spark in there, it blows up. And that's why you see so many of these things brewing up. But this first video shows how not to do tank warfare and explains why the Russians have lost so, so many tanks. It also explains why the, the MOD intelligence update only two weeks ago basically said the Russians have run out of tank crews. They might be making new tanks, but they're putting people in there. And in my experience, it takes about a year to train a tank crew to a reasonable degree. So if you're putting somebody in there with a couple of weeks training, Really, they are not very used at all. We're going to go on to the second tank video. This is the contrast. This, to me, is showing really good tank action. And it's a Ukrainian tank regiment, a tank platoon from a tank regiment in T-72s. Now, the first thing to note here, the tanks are actually camouflaged. They've got some camouflage on them. We've seen all the videos of drones flying around. It's really important to try and hide yourself on the battlefield. Again, it's a symptom of ill discipline and, and poor training not to do that. So the fact that these tanks are actually camouflaged, and you'll see in this particular piece, they are moving in and out of the woodlands, and they are firing. They are what we call jockeying. When a tank fires, 120 millimeter tank, there is a massive bang, big cloud of smoke, and you can see it from a long way away. Now, if you stay in the same place, you can be acquired. But in the second video, you'll see that the Ukrainian tanks are fairly well spaced out. Now, the key thing about spacing is that if you think, if I'm sitting in my Challenger 2 and I'm looking through my tank site, my field of vision, how far I can see, is about 200 meters left to right. Now, if I'm looking through that tank site, at the Russian tanks in the first video, in my 200 meters, I can see all four tanks and all three infantry vehicles. So for me as a tank commander, it's very easy because basically I'm putting my aiming mark, if you like, on the first tank. And while my tank gun is firing at it, I'm at what we call acquiring the others. And if I don't have to move my sight, I can take eight out very quickly. So that's what we saw in the first vid. In the second video, we see that the actually Ukrainian tanks are well spaced out. They're moving, they're firing, they're moving back quickly. You'll also see them using smoke. 
you, they have smoke grenade discharges, or you can basically inject fuel into your um, exhaust pipes, and that puts out a huge load of smoke. Again, not if you've got a thermal site, you'll see through it, but if you're just looking through ordinary sort of vision, then that is enough to obscure what you're doing. So that second video, they're moving around, they're firing. They're, interestingly enough, they're, they're, there's quite a lot of artillery fire coming on. If you're in a tank, that's not a problem. You get a direct hit, it is. But you're seeing here that they can operate fairly happily with this, with fire going on and shooting and scooting. Here, they're in fairly close engagements. But what actually we know Challenger 2 is really good at and being used at in the Ukraine is long range. We're talking here about 3K, 3,000 meters. And if you've got a drone at the far end spotting for you, you can be really accurate. So then moving on to the third video, which was in the paper on, on Thursday and Friday last week. This shows a Bradley infantry fighting vehicle. Interesting enough, made by BAE Systems these days, and I'm sure their share, shares have shot up. But this infantry vehicle attacking a T-90, much lauded, the Russians' indestructible tank, their most modern. But the, the Bradley is manoeuvring around, not being not being stuck in one place, but the T-90 is rolling slowly towards it in a very snowy landscape. And it sticks out. I mean, they, they should have painted it white or something like that just to make it blend in, which throughout the ages, and I might be getting over-involved in the detail. That Now that I'm actually writing a book about this stuff, I'm going into all these things about camouflage and deception. And if you get the chance, look at the types of colours we painted the British painted our tanks in Berlin after the war. Absolutely incredible to make them try and blend in with, with, with the background. But in this case, the Bradley infantry fighting vehicle with a 25 millimeter Bushmaster cannon, in effect, a large machine gun. You can see it firing repeatedly at the T-90 and eventually the T-90 brews up. The, the Ukrainian crew who were interviewed at this over the weekend was going well we know where, where the weak spots are and that's where we fired and there, there may be something in that if they fire at the turret ring that's where the turret joins the hull maybe there's weakness there but for a new tank like a t90 to brew up that is incredible and it, again it's isolated when whether you're a, a soldier or a tank if you're fighting you need to have mutual support so where you're moving somebody is static on the ground covering you. This T T90 is on its own and it's rolling into what we call the killing zone or the killing box. So those Ukrainian defenders will have worked out where they would like this tank to go and then make sure they focus all their firepower on it. And that's exactly what they've done. I understand that an FP drone followed up and completely took out that tank. So I, I think it's really interesting. One of the other key things, and I go back to the Holy Trinity of firepower protection mobility. From what I'm aware, not a single person has been killed in a Challenger 2, a Leopard 2, or an Abrams in Ukraine, which is amazing. But it really underwrites the key thing about protection. You know, you protect your crews so they can fight again, whereas the Russians don't. They brew up. And they've basically run out of crews. So what to all of that? Why, why do I think it, this is a moment that we should look at? Well, if we now consider that our Ukrainian tank force 
and supported by its armoured infantry know what they're doing, and these videos would appear to show it. If we look at the Russians, that they might have tanks, but they run out of experienced tank crew, and we hear a lot about stagnation at the moment, and in fact we're on a frozen front. Well, maybe things are about to change. The big thing that has affected tank operations hitherto is what we call air superiority, freedom of manoeuvre. And we report, we discuss over the last few weeks how the Ukrainians have shot down A-50 command and control aircraft, absolutely key for the air battle. We know the amount of fighter jets that the Russians have lost. We also know that the F-16s are coming over the hill. So if Ukraine can gain air superiority, that will allow their armoured formations to manoeuvre and get through the minefields. And the, the real challenge to get through the minefields is it takes time. But if you've got air superiority, you haven't got Russian attack helicopters and fighter jets taking out your tanks, then you can get on with it, which got, gives me hope. Allied to that, the maritime superiority that we've discussed many times on the pods, Black Sea's fleet is gone. They now have, you know, Marines. So if you could combine the air superiority, the maritime superiority, to me, that gives the potential for freedom maneuver in the land battle. And of course, allied to that, we must make sure that uh, the Ukrainians have enough ammunition to do this. So do look at those videos that will be posted later. See what you think. And I'm very keen to have a dialogue with anybody else who's got a view, particularly a counter view. Over. Thank you very much for all of that, Hamish. And just to repeat to our listeners, we'll put those three videos, one, two and three, in the show notes so you can go and have a look and cross-reference what you see there with Hamish's commentary. And as we said, please do get in touch, especially if you've got some experience in this and especially if you have a counter view. Thank you very much, Hamish. Let's move now then to our final thoughts. Francis or James, would you like to go first? Thanks, David. James was talking about opposition to the war in Russia earlier. And Medusa reported yesterday that the Russian State Duma deputies submitted to Parliament draft amendments to the Russian Criminal Code on the confiscation of property for those guilty of disseminating fake news about the Russian army. The Speaker said that the bill will allow the confiscation of money, valuables or other property used or intended to finance criminal activities against the security of the Russian Federation and will also allow courts to deprive citizens of honorary titles. Now, as flagged by Max Seddon, who's the Moscow bureau chief at the Financial Times, Russian lawmakers will be able to seize the property of anyone convicted of fake news about the war. This is a way of punishing people after they leave the country. Several folks I know transferred the deeds to their apartments anticipating something like this. And as Elliot Higgins of Bellingcat also writes on X, this would effectively mean that Russian journalists, activists and ordinary members of the public who tell the truth about what's happening in Ukraine can lose their homes as well as their freedom, effectively punishing their family members. Further evidence, therefore, if it were needed, of the clampdown on Russians who speak out about the conflict with a particular impact on those who've chosen to leave the country to do so. It needs to be seen, I think, in the context of the election and the regime trying to silence voices who might cause embarrassment domestically and especially internationally. Thank you very much, Francis. James Kilner, would you like to go next? So uh, just quickly to follow up on what Francis was saying about this bill uh, introduced in the uh, Russian Duma yesterday, I think it's important to understand that the timing 
is also deliberate. It, it is less than two months before this presidential election. And it does make it even tougher for people to go out and protest in any way, no matter how subtly, because one of the uh, charges they get slapped down with is discrediting the Russian army. And discrediting the Russian army is one of the reasons if this bill goes through, which of course it will, you could lose your home. So people are going to think yet again that it's just not worth standing up to the Kremlin. So I think the timing's really important here as well. This is designed to make people think twice again about uh, protesting against uh, Putin and his war. It's also uh, was rushed through yesterday, possibly as Nadezhdin was was closing in on 100,000 signatures. So so let's see where that goes, David. Really, really important for everyone to watch who's interested in this war. And then the last thing, I, I the last sort of shout out I want to uh, give before I sign off is for people in the UK, the US, Australia, New Zealand, uh, to go and see Daka Braka, um, these uh, the Ukrainian quartet, which is which is touring at the moment. I went in Glasgow. They're very much the vanguard of Ukraine's culture war. They're they're in, they style themselves as an ethnic chaos group. Lots of drums and haunting singing. It is really incredible uh, concert, and is also very geared uh, towards the war. They are they've been touring essentially constantly since the war started with their anti-Russia, anti-Kremlin messages and how they still think that Ukraine's going to win. They're playing Birmingham tonight and then they move down to the southwest of England before heading over to America and then Australia. Well, thank you very much, James and Francis. Hamish, very quickly, uh, your final thoughts, please. Yeah, thanks. My final thought after hopefully my upbeat tank area, just a quick thing on the doomsday clock, which is being reset in about an hour's time. This is the gauge by nuclear scientists around the world on how close we are to nuclear conflict. Last year, it was set at 90 seconds before midnight. When the Soviet bloc broke down, it was out at 17 minutes tonight towards midnight. I think it's important that we we don't, do not forget with Iran now having um, uh, weaponized uranium, and all the aggression that it's throwing across the Middle East at the moment, of course, North Korea, and of course, Russia. There's a story in various papers today that the Russians, again, are talking about using tactical nuclear weapons. So it is such a such an important piece with everything else that's vexing us at the moment that let's hope that our leaders are staying abreast of that and making sure that uh, we don't get any closer than 90 seconds to midnight. Thanks. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, a world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. 
And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.